Wow. I like that last song. Is that a third day song? I thought so. That Mac Powell written all over it. <laughs> That's great. Well, good morning again. Um, I have a question for you. Are there any opera fans in the house? Really? Oh, wow. I, I'm, I shouldn't sound so surprised or shocked, I guess, should I? Um, opera as an art form has been popular probably for well, a couple of centuries, two, three centuries, especially in Europe, not so much in North America. And most, have you noticed, most operas are sung either in German or French or Italian. There are some in English, but not that many. But that's not a bad thing all the time. Because if you actually hear them in English, what you find out a lot of times is how bad the plots are. <laughs> and uh, here, here's a few things, I've, I listed, and this is not on the screen, a few things you'll find in opera but almost nowhere else, okay? A king is pecked to death by a young rooster. <laughs> That's from Rimsky-Korsakoff's uh, The Young Pecker. Uh, a man is mistaken for an otter and shot. <laughs> How do you get mistaken for an otter? Yeah. Uh, here's one really good. Nobody sleeps because of a really dumb puzzle. That's actually the plot for Puccini's Turandò. But it sounds much better in Italian. Uh, but the main reason I'm kind of glad that a lot of the singing isn't in English is that a lot of operas are about illicit relationships with friends and relatives and strangers and, and about things like murder and poisonings and heartsick lovers ending their lives because they can't get what they want and so on. <sighs> you know, if, if all life was kind of like that, I think I'd, uh, as Ebenezer Scrooge said in, in A Christmas Carol, he'd say, I retired a bedlam if it was like that. Because compared to opera, most of our lives are pretty uncomplicated. That being said... <laughs> This morning, we are going to look in Mark. We're coming to one of the most sordid stories in the Bible. It's the murder of John the Baptist by a wicked, wicked family. It reads kind of like an opera plot or a soap opera. Now, John's death was tragic. It was tragic. But the lives of the people who orchestrated it were even more tragic. And Mark kind of inserts the story, uh, the background into this narrative of Jesus' life. Uh, in, a, in a way, he kind of gives us a, a little bit of a flashback here. Um, he inserts it, he starts out telling us about King Herod and what King Herod was, was doing. And then he says, oh, but, but you have to know the backstory. You have to know why he thought Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead, which is one of the things we'll hear him say today. So here's the deal. So I want us to quickly re review the context. Uh, let's pray as we begin, and then we'll turn in together to Mark chapter 6. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you as we've sung. Thank you even, Lord, that you preserve some of these hard things to wrestle with in the Bible, that we wrestle understanding why they took place. But what they reveal about us and about you is very important. So give us ears to hear and minds to understand why you've brought this to us in this chapter of Mark. In your name, Jesus, we pray and ask. Amen. Okay, now before we actually get into it, I want to just put it in context here. 
Jesus, at this point, last week, last time we were at the beginning of Mark, and Jesus has just expanded the ministry. He sent, sent out the 12. He sent the 12 of them out to uh, his closest companions to tell people about the kingdom of God. And he gave them authority to do it. He gave them authority not only to preach, but to, uh, he gave them authority over evil spirits. And, and so what they've been doing is they've been teaching and they've been healing people and they've been driving out demons and they've been declaring God's kingdom all over Galilee. Everything they do is in the name, like that last song, in the name and the power of Jesus. And word spreads. It multiplies. Word of what's happening spreads even into the, the, the deserted areas of the wilderness. And, and eventually it even reaches this desert fortress of one of Israel's puppet kings, King Herod. Herod Antipas. Question for you as we, before we get into this. Have you ever done something really bad, but over time you, you kind of learn to live with it, and then something happens or someone says something, and you're struck again, or, or you're struck maybe for the first time with the weight of what you've done? I have had that. It's called conviction. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what happens to Herod in this story. Because, but Herod's true character unfortunately, is revealed by what he does with what he, what he knows and by what he doesn't do. Uh, it reveals a lot about the power of our words and the ideas behind them. And so that's why I titled this, Choose Your Words Carefully, because we're going to see the effect of that. So we're going to read this, the, 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 the whole Scripture passage that we're looking at today, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, pack it, unpack it a bit. Mark 6, starting at verse 14. So, this is just after they, they've sent out the twelve and, and this word is spreading. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. And some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's, Eli it's, he's Elijah. And still others claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she said. 
she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's cold. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Yowzers. Uh, Jesus, the one who makes all forgiveness possible, was the Messiah that had been predicted for centuries. Five centuries earlier, the prophets had spoken about him. And John, John the baptizer, was his forerunner. Isaiah prophesied that he would come. He, in, in Isaiah 40, he called him, he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And John came with that message, and he preached a message. And the way to get ready, according to John, was to repent, to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. Get right with God and get your life straightened out. By the way, that's the correct sequence. A lot of times we think, I'll get my act together and then I'll come to God. No, no, that's the correct sequence. You can't get your life together until you're right with God. That's the way it works. So, the message that John preached was pretty simple. It was repentance. And that is actually the same message that Jesus came with. Because in Mark 1, we read him say, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. It's also, coincidentally, not really, the, the message that the apostles took around Galilee. Repentance. Now, people knew the people knew that Jesus was no ordinary guy, but they didn't really at this point know his true nature. They didn't really understand that he was actually God in the flesh. And, and even his own disciples didn't really get it until after his resurrection. And so there was a lot of speculation going on that we've seen here when he began doing things like, oh, I don't know, little stuff like changing water into wine and, and healing paralytics who have have not been able to walk since birth. So there was all this talk going on. Who really is Jesus? Who is this guy? And one popular belief was that he actually was John the Baptist raised from the dead because John had been executed by this point. Now, we're not sure why they thought Jesus was John because there's actually no record of John doing any miracles at all. Uh, but the people had great respect and reverence for John. Now, others thought he might be Elijah returned from heaven. Uh, the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament, says that God would send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord in, to prepare the people for God's coming. What they didn't understand, of course, was that he was referring to that forerunner that forerunner to prepare the people. And still others thought that Jesus was a prophet like the prophets of old. 
because God had done miracles through the prophets too. So they believed that Jesus was a wise, that he was a wise man of God, but still a man. But somehow Herod grabs onto this first idea. John preached repentance. Jesus and his disciples preached repentance and do miraculous things. He must be John raised from the dead. Which is an amazing thought considering that Herod belonged to a religious group that didn't actually believe in life after death. He must have been living with some real load of guilt over what he had done. <laughs> so you think you got problems. I, I didn't leave a lot of space to take notes because believe me, it's too complicated. But I want to tell you a little about Herod's family tree. Uh, why was John on Herod's case? And for that answer, you have to go back into the family history because it reads like a tacky novel. Okay, so Herod was actually a title. It wasn't his first name. It was a title. Um, the Herod that we see here in Mark 6 was Herod Antipas. He was the child of Herod the Great uh, by a, a Samaritan wife. Uh, Antipas, married, he married the daughter of the king of Nabataea, a king named Aretas. Now, Herod the Great, this fellow's dad, had other sons. He had one called Aristobulus and brother Philip through another wife named Ariamne. And he had another son named, also named Philip by Cleopatra. But here's where it gets really complicated. Aristobulus had a daughter, Herodias. And so our Herod was actually Herodias' uncle. Herodias married... <laughs> I can't, you can't make this stuff up. Herodias married her own father's brother, Philip, and they had a daughter who Luke tells us is named Salome, the dancer. Salome eventually married another one of Anipus's half-brothers, the other Philip. But, but how did the marriage between Herod and Herodias uh, come about? Well, it came about this way. While he was visiting Rome, he saw her there and he had a torrid love affair with her. And then he came back and divorced his wife, which, and because she was the daughter of a foreign king, that, that started a war between him and, and, and King Aretas that destroyed his, Herod's army. Um, so then Herodias divorces Philip, her husband, and moves in with Antipas. So Herod is now married to his half-brother Philip's wife, who is actually his niece by his other half-brother Aristobulus. Are we getting confused yet? That's why I said, don't bother writing it down. It's just like, I was, was going to do one of those flow charts, and I figured I wouldn't have enough slides, which is hard to run out of when they're electronic. Anyway, that's yeah, a little confusing. And, oh, and just to complicate things a little further, technically, Herod Antipas wasn't actually a king. He was only a tetrarch, which is, means the... Uh, uh, about a, a quarter of a king. Uh, it, tetrarch means that uh, um, he, he was the ruler of one quarter of a country. Uh, one of his br brothers was also a tetrarch, and the other brother was what, an ethnarch or a ruler of a whole nation. So, so in the greater realm of things, even in his own family, Herod's a bit player. He's not a big deal. 
but he was the prominent ruler of Galilee. And so John calls him to account for his life because his marriage was unlawful. According to the law of Moses, it was prohibited. Sexual relations with your brother's wife while he was still living was prohibited, much less one's own niece. It's incestuous. And John kept saying this. He didn't just say it once among close friends. He continued to call Herod to account, which infuriated Herodias. And so she had the daggers out for him. So Herod puts him in prison to, partly to protect him from his wife. But he was fascinated by John, and they talked a lot. But, but I can just imagine the conversations. John, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to prepare for Messiah coming. Herod, yeah, right. Well, tell me more. Well, for starters, your marriage really sucks. It isn't right. And, and though he respected John, Herod made no move to correct what he must have known was an immoral and illegal union. He didn't care. Now, you don't have to put a hand up, but have you ever known someone who was so so fueled by hatred and bent on revenge that it was obvious to everybody around him? Yeah. That's Herodias. She was going to stop at nothing to get rid of John the Baptist. But you see, John wasn't the problem. The sin was the problem. And whenever we are confronted with sin, especially our sin, we tend to reject the messenger because we don't want to hear about it. And Herodias gets their opportunity at this birthday party that Herod throws for himself. In the first century, things like birthday parties were considered to be pagan celebrations. Not the kind of thing a Jewish king should be, could be doing anyway. But they were frowned upon by the really devout Jews. Now, at these banquets, the men would eat and drink in, uh, together, separate, separate from the women. And the women had their own banquet room. The kind of dancing that Herodias' daughter performed would be described today as exotic. Um, usually the dancers were prostitutes. And for someone from the ruler's own family to dance this way was, in its, was itself a scandal. The fact that her mother encouraged her to do it, or maybe even orchestrated it, knowing that her husband and his guests could be lusting over her daughter was even more scandalous. And another factor, wine flowed freely at these gatherings. So picture a stag party with a dancing girl and a, probab a probably drunken king making a rash promise impulsively he offers her anything you want up to half my, my kingdom. That's a figure of speech, meaning uh, if I can give it, you'll have it. And after leaving the room to consult with her mother, she drops the bomb. I want right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. When Herod's distressed, 
because he knows, he knows John is righteous and holy. But now he's in a dilemma. What does he do? How would it look if he said no after promising the girl anything? He'd look like a fool. And so instead of doing the right thing, he does the expedient thing. And John's life is snuffed out. Did I say sorted? Yeah. Yeah. Words. Very rarely, if ever, have I regretted saying too few things. But I often have regretted saying too much. Um, anybody who's, is there anybody here who's never gotten into trouble by opening their mouth before their brain was engaged? <laughs> yeah, we could all put our hand up on that one, couldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, one author I know wrote, uh, wrote he, he said it this way, he said, Choose your words carefully and make them sweet, for you never know when you might have to eat them. <laughs> what we say reveals a lot about us. And what we do reveals even more. But look at what is revealed about the character of the people in, the, in this story from the Bible by their words. You look at John. John's word, naturally, he was a prophet. His words were prophetic, but they were convicting and they were truthful. What was John's crime? Nothing. He told it like it was. He called sin, sin. He was the same man, whether he was in front of a ruler like Herod or among just common folks. John preached fearlessly, even when he was in prison. Even when he was in prison, he didn't pull any punches with Herod, although Herod at any time could have had him executed on any premise, pretense. But the result was that even though Herod didn't repent of his sin, he knew John to be righteous and holy by what John said and by the way he lived. Well, contrast that with, with the words of Herodias, which show that she is not only vengeful, but she's hateful, and I would go as far as to say evil. She allowed her daughter to dance at that party. She extracted revenge on John through Salome's request. And she knew her husband well. She knew he would give John over to the executioner. And then, of course, there's Herod himself, a foolish man of impulsive words. Making a rash vow it's a serious matter. Even Jesus talked about that with people. He said, make your yes, yes, and your no, no. Just leave it at that. Don't swear by heaven or by all those other things. Just make your yes, yes, and your no, no. A vow is a binding oath, whether it was to marry or to live a life of poverty or whatever. But, but Herod didn't have the... the uh, he didn't have the guts to admit that to carry out Salome's wish would be a terrible evil. It, it was a sin before God to renege on a vow, but it was a greater sin to thoughtlessly take an oath. And then finally, Salome's words show that she was conniving, she was heartless, and she was cruel. Mom says, I'll, uh, tell, me, tell him to give you the head of the guy I detest. Daughter says, sure. Why not? And, and that's the way it unfolds. John dies. 
the excitement of John's disciples over what Jesus and the twelve have been doing is extinguished by the news that now there's a body to be picked up. Earlier, when John had seen Jesus walking by one day, he told his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he must increase, I must decrease. Follow him, is what John was saying. He knew. John's disciples don't have any choice now to follow because John's not... John is no more. I hope, I truly hope that none of us ever see this kind of wickedness. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But there are places in this world today where these things still happen. And even this week, we've seen examples of it. Well, we want to wrap our time up. But there's four, four things, I w- uh, four observations I think we can take away from this gruesome story. First, spreading the gospel, standing up for what you believe, involves risk. If you're going to be true, at some point, someone won't be happy. The reason it's risky is that the gospel galvanizes people into two camps, One or the other. Uh, The letter to the Hebrews from the New Testament in chapter 4 says this, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God's Word challenges us to examine ourselves. Once examined, we're either going to agree with God's Word or we'll reject it. And quite frankly, many people under that kind of challenge become really defensive and you might be the unhappy recipient of their anger over their own condition being revealed. That's what fueled Herodias to go after John. But John wasn't the problem. Their sin was the problem. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is living and active, and yeah, it cuts right to the heart of the matter. So don't be surprised if you see opposition. That's for us. Second is this, and it's an unfortunate fact. Good people sometimes suffer because of other people's foolishness and sin. Folly and sin. Had John done anything wrong? No. Absolutely not. He was in the right. Even Herod knew that. But his apparent lack of spine and his ego made John expendable. Now, Herodias, on the other hand, her bitter hatred toward John expedited the whole process. But if there's one aspect of God's sovereignty I think that we wrestle with and maybe to wrestle with the most, I think it might be this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we're not honest if we don't say that we wrestle with this. We do. But we continue to trust our God 
because we trust that His Word is true. The short answer is that we share this world with others, and not everybody is a nice person. Apart from Jesus, we are capable of great misdeeds. Bad stuff does happen. Random acts of violence seem to be on the increase. I don't know if it's that or just because we have such an instantaneous society with electronics now we hear about more. I, I'm not comforted by that. But I am comforted by what uh, theologians call God's, you don't have to write this down, God's prevenient grace. Pre again, that means God, God's goodness that is extended to everybody and is the basis of any good found in people. And I also know that ultimately those sinful acts of violence have been paid for by Jesus. Because Jesus died for every person's sin. Every person alive. Not just for those who make their peace with him. Mark doesn't explain why this happened to John. But John was being true to God and his calling as a disciple and as a prophet. Third point is this. And that's our main focus today. And it's just this reminder, choose your words carefully. Oh, my. Oh, my. John was on rock-solid ground. Yep. His words also reflected his love for Jesus. And Jesus said the word of God was more important to life than any kind of food. It's what he rebuked the devil with when he was tempted. Man does not live on, by word alone, but on every, by bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Don't tempt me with, with toast, devil. God's Word, this book, it's an owner's manual for life. Be careful, how, be careful to follow the Word of God. Uh, a lot of us have gotten into trouble by a slip of the lip, by shooting our mouths off, or by saying things that we deeply regret later. <sighs> Herodias and her daughter have to give an account before God. So will we. Don't be like Herod, who ignored the word of God and allowed his own understanding, his foolish oath, to be carried out. An appalling act but also an act that really was the logical consequences of his actions. So choose our words carefully. Uh, whether it's in a making a commitment to do something with your family or serving in your church or your community or, or even in the way you speak to your family, choose your words carefully. And finally, remember. Now, I'm sure this is on a lot of pillows uh, embroidered pillows on couches and things. Our actions speak even louder than our words. I, uh, did you ever have a dad who said, do as I say, not as I do? <laughs> and then he'd laugh. He said, no, he knew that was right. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 it's not on the screen. I just want to read, read it a couple of things here. Matthew 
Okay, yeah, Matthew 12, just, just uh, two, little, two little verses, uh, verse 34 and 35. Um, the last half of verse 34. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Uh, another way I heard it put to me is that uh, your actions don't matter as much as your reaction. What, what spills out of you when you're bumped tells me a lot more about you than, than what you say. Our kids know, our kids know what's really important to us, and they learn from us. That's a double-edged sword because they learn the good and the bad. Ask my, 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 my sweetheart about why one of the reasons that she quit smoking. She'll tell you the story. That's not for now. Tell it later. Um, but you set the tone in your home. Did, did Salome become the person she was because of peer pressure at school? I doubt it. Did Herodias set out to teach her daughter how to be manipulative and cruel? No, but her actions made plain that she would do anything to get or keep what she wanted, even commit murder, and her actions influenced her daughter. I don't think I would sleep well at night in that kind of household. And sadly, some of us have endured those kind of things. But our speech ultimately reveals what we are about deep down inside. We teach our children far more through modeling than through verbal instruction. They watch us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in our hearts today? Do you have a heart for God and a willingness to follow? Does what you say match what you do? Choose your words carefully. Let's pray. This is a tough one, Lord. It's a tough one because I know that I have many times had to ask forgiveness for things that I have said that came through harsher than I wanted to, but, but that was the way I felt, and I let it out, and I shouldn't have. And Lord, with your grace, I pray that you would forgive me for those things. I know that you do, but I also pray, Lord, you would teach me, make me more like you, mold me, shape me. Uh, I, I don't want to ever be that kind of person, Lord. We want our words to line up with what you say is good and pleasing whatever is true and noble and right. And we should think on these things and we should be your people that have humbleness and gentleness of spirit as you were. And so, Lord, help us to be careful how we speak and when we speak, to speak words of life and hope and healing and love and mercy. For that is who you are. And that is who, in you, Jesus, we are. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.